the sense of isolation and shame. If he couldn't be a doctor anymore, then he was of no value to his family. I almost had a death wish. It was the lowest point of my life to date. We need to take care of ourselves in order to take care of anyone else. It drives some physicians to alcohol. It drives major depression. It drives suicidal ideation. It challenges marriages. And we need more help and we need to help each other. This is the fourth episode of Doctors and Litigation, The L Word, a podcast meant for physicians exploring the complex world of medical malpractice litigation and its impact on our lives. In our last podcast, we heard the story of Dr. V, a difficult listen taking one physician's story from medical case to legal resolution. It highlighted many of the stressors and pressures of cases that go wrong and the litigation that often follows, even for doctors who do everything right. Please do listen to that and the two before it as well because they are building towards today's episode, which is perhaps the most difficult to listen to, but also maybe the most important. Later in this episode, we're going to hear from a psychologist who has expertise in supporting physicians through litigation. We'll talk about coping strategies, resources for help, and why peer support programs are so important. But before we get there, we are going to hear the ultimate reminder of why this topic is so vital for us to talk about. Litigation stress can be a normal response to an abnormal stressor, as we talked about in the first podcast. But it can cross into a more severe stress, termed malpractice stress syndrome, even for physicians with no previous history of anxiety, depression, or substance abuse. This is where we can develop behaviors or psychological symptoms that are so severe that they affect the fabric of our lives. We develop difficulties at work. We fall into substance abuse. We destroy our relationships. We develop eating disorders or PTSD. We isolate ourselves, refusing to acknowledge that we need help. We lose our sense of control, our sense of self, our confidence in our abilities, all the cornerstones of our identities as physicians and human beings. And sometimes, we contemplate suicide. When he actually said he was suicidal, then we knew he needed to be hospitalized. One of the voices you heard in the beginning belongs to a woman named Kay, a physician. She gave me permission to use her name, but in keeping with all of these stories, I am choosing to keep them anonymous. Her husband, who I will call Dr. J, was an accomplished OBGYN and a father of four, with no previous history of depression, who died by suicide in the aftermath of a patient death in an pending litigation. Kay wants you to know their story. Their story may be a very difficult listen if you are yourself in crisis. And I want to say right now that the National Suicide Prevention Hotline is there for everyone at 1-800-273-8255. Everybody, even healers, need help sometimes, and the right thing to do is ask for it. 
Getting help as a physician does have its challenges, as you'll hear in a minute. There are hurdles that we need to work together to remove. But we need to first care enough collectively to demand change from systems and to create networks of support ourselves. And Dr. J's story is a place for us to start. Medicine meant nearly everything to Dr. J. It was his gift to the world. It was his gift to his family. Dr. J had cared for the patient at the center of this story for years, and then throughout what was a healthy pregnancy, except for hypertension. A lady that he had followed and taken care of throughout her pregnancy uh, and delivered her baby, and she had hypertension throughout her pregnancy, which he managed, because, of course, OBs manage hypertension in pregnancy. And it persisted when she still was there for her postpartum checkup. After a normal delivery, the patient remained hypertensive. She'd had normal labs throughout her pregnancy, and Dr. J started her on hydrochlorothiazide. He referred her to an internist who saw her just a few days later. And he saw her four days later, I mean, so she went immediately to the internist. The internist agreed on the medication choice and then ordered outpatient labs. Alarmingly, her potassium on those labs resulted critically low at 1.8. But no physician was ever notified by the laboratory. Not the internist, not Dr. J, and not the patient who continued her diuretic and, not long after, went into cardiac arrest and died. He felt responsible for her death because he prescribed the medicine that killed her. And he didn't draw a baseline lab. Had they called the internist, she'd have stopped the medicine, been seen in the ER, gotten her potassium supplement, and she'd have been fine. But tragically, that is not what happened. Dr. J was absolutely devastated when he heard about her death. Felt responsible for the death of a lady he knew extremely well because he followed her throughout her pregnancy and delivered her baby. And The effect on Dr. J was profound. He became depressed. And then, of course, a malpractice suit was filed. Eventually, it was discovered that the patient had developed an aldosterone-producing adrenal tumor, causing hypertension and dangerous hypokalemia, though she had never had hypokalemia during her pregnancy. Dr. J could not possibly have known that. And if the lab had notified a physician, the patient likely would not have died, but he blamed himself. This young woman had been a patient of his for years. He could not escape the guilt of having written the prescription that he felt ended her life. Just after her new baby came into the world, it was a tragedy. And no matter what anyone did to convince him otherwise, he felt that he had created it. And so when Dr. J was named in a lawsuit shortly after, it added on to the weight of this burden. He feared that he would lose his license, his identity as a physician, his identity as a human being. When he felt like he was going to lose his ability to practice medicine, he felt he had no value to his family. But he was an amazingly good father and a good husband. And he thought they would, you know, that he wasn't a capable OBGYN and they'd take his license away and that he wouldn't be able to practice anymore. And I mean, none of those things were probably true, but that's what he believed. None of those things were probably true, but that's what he believed. Keeping perspective in the setting of profound human stress can be extraordinarily difficult. Dr. J believed he was responsible 
for someone's death. He believed he was going to be deemed an incompetent physician, and he believed that without medicine, he had no value. His depression worsened. And again, this is a productive physician with no previous history of mental health issues. And eventually, he knew he was in trouble. He admitted to his wife that he had almost carried out an attempted suicide, but at the last minute could not go through with it. He knew he needed help. When he actually said he was suicidal, then we knew he needed to be hospitalized. Now, as hard as it is to listen to this, knowing the outcome, this next part is the part that's hardest to accept. And why we as a community of physicians need, absolutely need, to be aware of how fraught these situations can be. Dr. J and his wife knew he needed to be hospitalized. He had been increasingly considering suicide even after his initial aborted attempt. But due to his career and confidentiality concerns, he did not want to be hospitalized in his own hospital. It seemed inevitable that his colleagues would find out, and most of us as physicians can understand the reasons why we would want to avoid this. He saw a psychiatrist, and that psychiatrist recommended a colleague at a hospital across state lines. Dr. J and his wife drove there, met with the psychiatrist whom Dr. J felt an immediate connection with, and he was hopeful and thought this would be exactly what he needed to get better. And then... And then as we were about to be admitted, insurance was covered by this large group practice that had a self-insurance coverage. And when they called that group because it was self-insured, they said, no, we won't cover a hospitalization out of state. Dr. J took this personally. His group was self-insured and the board of it was made of physicians who knew him. And they would not approve of his going out of state for help. They would only pay for a hospitalization at their local hospital. Dr. J opted to return to his home state a decision that Kay now regrets. He did not want to be there. He was afraid of what would happen to his reputation if anyone found out. He did not trust the new treating psychiatrist. And he felt his colleagues, too, saw him as not worth the investment of saving. They didn't think he was valuable enough to cover his insurance at one hospital over another. What the hell difference did it make? It was, it was to him, it was one more vote against his value as a human being. He made up his mind. He knew the right things to say, and shortly after arrival, he was deemed improved enough to be given grounds privileges, and taking advantage of them, he left the hospital campus, hiked into the hills, and there died by suicide, hanging himself. Doctors do not like asking for help. We do not like admitting weakness. And the culture of medicine is such that Admitting weakness insinuates you are not made of the same superhuman stuff of your colleagues or your role models. In general, again, talking about the, the psychology of physicians, we don't tend to ever admit that we have any weakness because that's something else that was inculcated into us in training that if you're a good doctor like me, your professor, you know, you are not weak, you are strong, you are not ill, you are well, you can work no matter what, that kind of thing. 
That's Louise Andrew, MDJD, of mdmentor.com, whom I introduced in the first podcast. Again, if you haven't listened to the first three podcasts, I do recommend that you go back because there's valuable information in each of those that I want you to hear. But to get back to the point, even as hard as it is to admit that we need help, sometimes getting it is even more daunting. Physicians have trouble obtaining confidential mental health help that takes their unique sensitive needs into account. We often fear loss of licensure or hospital privileges because of intrusive questions about mental health treatment or diagnoses on applications. A 2011 study by Shanafelt et al. surveyed members of the American College of Surgeons. It revealed that 1 in 15 of the responding surgeons reported recent suicidal ideations but more than 60% were reluctant to seek any psychological help because it might affect their license. And sadly, these concerns are not unfounded. Medical licensure application questions in many states are intrusive, and they ask about previous treatment, not simply the physician's current abilities to practice medicine. In fact, one study by Dr. Lizalat Dirbai, and I hope I'm pronouncing that right, in the Mayo Clinic proceedings suggested a direct relationship between the wording and intrusiveness of medical licensure application questions and the physician's willingness to seek mental health. And even though groups such as the AMA, the American Psychiatric Association, and the Federation of State Medical Boards recommend against it, the majority of states will still ask whether or not you have been treated for a mental health condition not whether it's current or active or whether it impairs your abilities, simply answering that you have at some point sought treatment is enough to allow the state board to demand more details or give you a provisional license with restrictions, or if they aren't satisfied, to not renew your license. And yes, it seems like that should be illegal under the Americans with Disabilities Act, but licensing boards can do it because they feel that it's their duty to protect the public at all costs. But in fact, is counterproductive as it keeps physicians from getting the help they need, furthering their impairment and raising the risks of medical error. And this is something that we should be working to change. Physicians often wait until it's almost too late to look for help, as in the case of Dr. J. And what's most tragic of all in his story is how the events unfolded after he sought help. I'm certain that Dr. J.'s colleagues on the board did not know what the consequences of their decisions would be, or how they would be interpreted by Dr. J in his depressed state. But I do think it's tragic that, even knowing what was happening to him, no one reached out to him. No individual physician colleague reached out to give him perspective, to lend an ear, to empathize, to understand. And there was no peer support program or other resources offered. There was his wife, who tried everything within her power, but sometimes it really does take an outsider's help and perspective. And so I want to make this point clear. The fact that physician mental health and litigation stress have been taboo subjects for so long means that physicians who are not struggling themselves are often simply unaware of the suffering of their colleagues or their risk of suicide. Physicians who are suffering don't let it on and don't seek help until very late in the game, if ever. And meanwhile, colleagues who are in the dark don't reach out either because they don't know or they do, but they don't want to start an uncomfortable conversation. So one of my goals with this podcast is simply to raise awareness, to make this a topic of open conversation so that the physician community at large understands that there are good doctors, friends or colleagues of theirs who are in crisis, who are at high risk. 
and that our culture of silence feels like a lack of empathy. It feels like a silent rebuke. It worsens feelings of inadequacy. If we don't even have the esteem of our colleagues, we are indeed as worthless as we feel. That is how we think. And there are too many stories like Dr. J's. They are physicians like us who go to work every day with hard-won skills and a desire to help others and a dedication to the patients we serve. There are too many stories like this of good physicians lost. We need to address this head on. We have a suicide problem in medicine, and although litigation stress and adverse events aren't the only cause, they are definitely a cause, and one that we have the power to start to address. In the second half of this podcast, as promised, we're going to talk about some resources and coping strategies. First, let's talk about resources. Now, in the first two podcasts, I did mention some of them. I talked about some specific books that are helpful, and I really feel that everyone involved in this process should get at least one book about it to educate themselves. I also mentioned some websites, including physicianlitigationstress.org and mdmentor.com. Dr. Stacia Dearman also has a blog about litigation stress and coping at thrivephysician.com, T-H-R-I-V-E physician.com. And many professional societies also have resources as well. You just have to look for them. Some physicians have turned to professional groups on social media for support, which can be helpful, but I want to caution you that often what you think is private may not actually be, so it is critical that you not discuss specifics of your case and keep your posts anonymous when possible. In my second trial, it was very apparent that the plaintiff's attorneys had combed through all of my social media accounts, actually confronting me with some tweets of mine when I was on the stand, and thankfully I was mentally prepared for that. Consider how anything you post online would look if you were confronted with it in court, and be smart about what you put out there. Now, one other potential resource that I really want to highlight is one that many physicians unfortunately don't have access to but that I think can be enormously impactful, and that is a structured physician peer support program. And I'm going to spend a little time on this because I'm hoping that someone listening to this will think about setting one up where they are, where there might be a need. I want to introduce you now to two colleagues of mine, Marge. I'm Margaret passioni Dyshlewski. I'm a psychologist here at Bradley and the Director of Clinical Innovation. And Suzanne. I'm Suzanne Dooney-Briggs. I'm the Director of Loss Prevention for Lifespan Risk Services. They're both affiliated with Lifespan Health Systems, which is also the health system where I work. But this podcast is not affiliated with or supported by Lifespan. Suzanne is trained as a nurse and a lawyer, and in her role as Director of Loss Prevention and Risk Services for the hospital system, had a great deal of interaction with physicians entering the realm of litigation. And she had an idea. For the first few years of my career at Lifespan, I had been dealing with a lot of doctors who were showing signs of stress and and distress over being sued and thinking they have this intense pressure on them, yet they're still expected to go back in the operating room or back into the patient's room or meet a new patient with new illnesses and and expect to put all the stress aside and treat those patients non-preoccupied. Then came to my attention how many physicians were actually committing suicide while they were going through malpractice litigation and and the stress that that caused. And that really piqued my interest. I was pretty disturbed at those statistics. So I did some independent research and 
one day came across a, a research article that gave this phenomenon a name, malpractice stress litigation syndrome. And I went waving the copy of the article into my boss saying, okay, now it has a name. Now we have to do something about it. It took a little effort to convince administration that this is something that the doctors needed. So I had presented the idea of beginning a physician peer support program uh, three times. And each time it was met with Um, You know, we already send them the names of some counselors if they want to go. Oh, we have an EAP program, etc. So one day I was having a discussion with the co-director of the program, who is a surgeon, and he laughed and said, doctors are not going to go to EAP programs, and they're not going to want to go to a counselor. They're going to just want to keep it to themselves because they can fix this on their own. So, you know, I had the resistance three times, but then after... uh, after the article came out, and I think with just a little persistence, finally, my boss said, okay, okay, take it and run with it and do what you, you know, do what you need to do to start developing a program. Let's take it one step at a time. Suzanne had attended a risk management conference in Boston and heard Dr. Joe Shapiro, founder and director of the Center for Professionalism and Peer Support at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston, speak about her peer support program. Suzanne modeled it after this in many ways, but on a smaller scale. She had a lot of support from her organization, and she also had a lot of staff. Um, I felt like I did have the support of my organization, but I had no staff to work with. So I thought, let me start small, and I'm just going to target the defendant physicians who are undergoing the stress of malpractice litigation. She asked Marge, Dr. Passioni, who has a PhD in psychology and is faculty in the Department of Psychiatry and Human Behavior at Albert Medical School of Brown University, essentially to be her co-pilot. Here's Marge. I was totally on the page having met a number of docs who were struggling and suffering through this process. It's long been recognized that physicians involved in malpractice lawsuits often find themselves trying to navigate through all the emotion of the litigation process alone and unsupported. As the research has shown, this can have a devastating effect on their ability to focus and care not only for their patients, but for themselves as well. And so in 2010, the Apollo program was launched. In her role in risk management, Suzanne was able to identify doctors who had been involved in litigation in the last decade, who might serve as peer supporters. And after approaching their department heads and asking who might be good candidates personality-wise, physicians who could listen to and support other doctors going through this, a panel of 10 volunteer physician peer supporters was assembled. Marge helped develop a training program for these physicians. They had the experience of litigation behind them, but now they had an expert psychologist teaching them how to be effective listeners and supporters as well. All of it was confidential and, as everyone knew not to discuss case details, was considered to be a safe haven for support. One big point of the Apollo program is that these these doctors are trained not to go into the details and facts, but to focus on the feelings. And usually the defendant docs have no problem with sticking to those guidelines. Marge's other role was to serve as a consultant. So that when docs are involved with uh, folks who are going through the litigation process and things become, or it becomes apparent that the person needs support beyond peer support, then I'm there in that capacity. 
In the years since the program was launched, it has served many physicians, perhaps even saving some lives. Marge tells one such story. I had a doc who I think has one of the best descriptors. He said that when he was served with the lawsuit, it was like getting hit in the head with a two-by-four. He experienced difficulty concentrating. He was fearful of making another error. He was beginning to second-guess, and he, in a very real way, uh, went down the road of isolating. Uh, When I met this gentleman, he was very actively suicidal, and I was really glad that he reached out at the time he did. He he got frightened by his own own thoughts and feelings and um, reached out for help, which which was just wonderful. He's doing quite well and moving through the feelings. Can't stuff them, got to go through them. I asked Suzanne if she was pleased with the way the program had evolved. Oh, absolutely. I think it's 100% success. I've had so many doctors either tell me, I gave you know one of the docs in the Apollo program a call. Thank you so much for having this program. It really was helpful to talk to a doctor who's been there. And I've had a lot of the supporters say, It felt really good to support these people. I feel like I was giving back, or I feel like my experience, my horrific experience being sued, wasn't all for nothing. I asked Marge to tell me some of the things she's learned in her many years counseling physicians going through litigation stress. I said to her that one of the things that used to really bug me was that I couldn't just get over it. I didn't understand why I felt the way I felt, and I thought I should just be able to handle it. Here's what she said to me. Oh, that. Yeah. (laughs) So the event of being sued in any world is extraordinarily stressful. Moving into the culture of medicine, and now we've taken it off the charts. So within the culture of medicine, uh, medicine itself is fraught with all kinds of gray area. As much as medicine is presented as an absolute science, it really is not. We know some things absolutely. Most we don't. Most we live in the the gray areas. But even given all of the gray areas within medicine uh, and the lack of absolutes, the culture of medicine is one of perfectionism and um, very high expectations uh, that errors are not to take place, that errors are not to be tolerated. um, And there's a very strong sense of personal responsibility for patients should errors occur for outcomes that are unexpected, many of which are outside of the control of the doc. Uh, So you put those two pieces together. We're in the gray area, but on the other hand, we're in a culture of perfectionism. And so when these untoward events occur in that culture, it is uh, much more difficult than in many, many other cultures. And then the culture itself rarely supports open discussion about about the events. Uh, It's also a culture, um, there's a a little bit of a code of silence. Then you put that together with the discoverability worry, and it lights out. There's an awful lot of silence. People wind up in silos. And that's where it's really easier for docs to feel so isolated and alone in this process. So it really is incumbent upon us to try to change the paradigm just a little bit to take the culture that exists and to move it to a place that's a little more tolerant, a little more aware of the gray areas, and uh, certainly away from the intellect and into the emotion, uh, away from the head and into the heart. She explains how colleagues reaching out to one another can help interrupt the cycles that lead to isolation. 
One of the things that tends to happen is when the individual that is being sued is served, their worry about the stigma of being served is very, very significant. And so what would be helpful is if colleagues could reach out, take the first step, and try to uh, interrupt the isolation, which is a natural outgrowth of you know, all of the emotions, uh, not the least of which is the worry that they are going to be rejected by their colleagues, going to be isolated, and going to be stigmatized. So reaching out from the neutral party, the neutral colleague, is really, really helpful. I asked Marge for general advice that she would give to physicians about how to deal with some of the various stressors. And no surprise, as you've heard here many times before, one of the chief things that a physician can do is talk to someone they trust about what's going on. So one of the things that happens uh, when folks are experiencing traumatic stress on any level is that there is a tendency to try to escape from the feelings, um, usually by sublimating them or stuffing them, and nothing could be less helpful than that. Uh, So feelings, whatever they are, whether they're uh, feelings of guilt or shame, uh, anger uh, at the courts, anger at the patients uh, that brought the litigation, those feelings are best dealt with in a very uh, slow and measured way. So if docs could be supported in the process of talking through their issues, uh, that would be very, very helpful. So if you can um, look at what the emotions are, as alien, as difficult, as painful as they are, each time you talk about the emotion, each time you describe what you're experiencing, it forevermore changes that emotion and changes that series of events. Uh, in a positive direction, and gives the person with the feelings a lot more control over those emotions. In addition to talking, Marge has some other concrete strategies to suggest, and one of them involves reframing, like we talked about in previous podcasts. One of the things that we see that's helpful is, now this is easy to say, not so easy to do, is to move from this is an assault on my professionalism and who I am and, and how I do what I do to, well, this is kind of about the money. And that shift is a really tall order to make. But what I've seen with docs who are able to reframe or change the paradigm, um, it's very, very helpful. But that, that's a process. That's where there's a lot of conversation Uh, with the peer supporter, with family, with friends, with colleagues, with the therapist, if if that's uh, something that is comfortable or needed. But that shift is is a critical one. She also says it's critical to take care of yourself, not to bury yourself in work, but to really push yourself to engage in activities outside of medicine that you enjoy and to spend time with people you like to be with. It might be a struggle, but forcing yourself to exercise or get outside or plan a vacation is possibly just what you need. And since litigation can last for a very long time, it's important to make taking care of yourself a habit. Those of us that go into medicine are usually other-focused, and so this uh, foreign concept to focus on ourselves and take care of ourselves becomes a challenge. 
there's where uh, the discipline of medicine is helpful. So if we can understand that we need to take care of ourselves in order to take care of anyone else, and that includes anybody in our uh, family, our friends, and certainly as well as our patients, then I have all the confidence in the world that we can get there. We use a very simple play-rest-escape formula. So if folks could think about on the play end of things, as the litigation is going on, as the stress is unfolding, to try to focus away from the legal aspects, away from the uh, details of the case and the litigation, as difficult as that is. Rest, um, some of us tend to lose ourselves in work. And so uh, one of the patterns that I've seen with docs is that when the litigation process is happening, docs tend to work harder. And it's a very common stress reaction. It's a way to make all the bad feelings go away. It's a way, perhaps, to overcompensate. I'm, my self-image as a, as a professional is being questioned, and so there's a tendency to work harder. One of the downsides to that is fatigue. And so in the stress and in the fatigue, we begin to set the stage for additional errors if an error has, in fact, occurred the first time. So play, rest, and then on the escape end of things, again, as difficult as it is, and this takes a little bit of uh, discipline, is when I am stressed and I'm not feeling at the top of my game, what can I do to help myself? And so think about that when the stress is a little bit less. Uh, so what could that be? And for some folks uh, are runners, some folks are swimmers, some folks get involved with meditation, uh, some folks are readers, some folks travel, some folks go out to dinner with a friend, <laughs> some folks dance. Uh, As an aside, she's laughing because that's what I did. I entered a ballroom dancing competition, but we'll talk more about that some other day. And when the stress is high, that's the time to say, I need to go to my own support system. I need to go to what makes me feel better. This is actually really good advice for medicine in general, whether or not you're being sued, as more and more of us struggle under burnout type conditions. And then when we are sued, it really adds on top of that. Oh, absolutely. With um, all of what's uh, involved in practicing medicine these days, the caseloads, the electronic health record, dealing with uh, insurance companies, trying to balance different uh, resources uh, and the shortage of those resources, changing technology and different demands on the uh, providers. Uh, the last thing that providers need is to deal with a whole area of litigation, that whole legal world that is really quite alien to them. It just adds stress on top of stress. One thing we do have to recognize is that getting to be okay can sometimes feel like a lot of work. And even when litigation is over, sometimes those feelings can persist for some time and still need to be managed. It's work, isn't it? Oh, it's, it's incredibly, it's incredibly hard work. Some of the signs and symptoms and feelings uh, are very long lasting. I don't know that I've ever chatted with a doc. And remember, we have a panel of 10 peer supporters who have all been through litigation. And I don't think there's one of them that will say that they're over this, that they don't have moments and times when they go right back to some of the bad feelings that are associated with the litigation. One of the things that's interesting about trauma is that 
the trauma uh, gets stored in, in a particular place in the brain and um, doesn't go away. It, it lives there. It's traumatic memory. And we're never sure what's going to trigger it. It could be a case note. It could be a particular smell in the room. It could be a person that you're talking with looks similar to the patient that was involved in the event or like the lawyer. And so once those traumatic memories are activated, we call it, it has, has a name, it's called dysphoric recall. So when the difficult memories are triggered, they come up to the surface as if they had just occurred. They are very real. They're very hurtful and um, very, very, very strong. And those don't ever go away. We could bury memories, but they're easily triggered. And one of the things that makes dysphoric recall uh, interesting is that we don't know what's going to trigger, what's going to trigger them. So we just let our guard down, and next thing you know, here comes those emotions again. Now again, many less traumatic cases will not leave such a lasting imprint. Particularly in cases with very adverse outcomes, however, you should understand that it's normal human nature to have these symptoms linger. But they can be managed, and you can be okay. You can thrive despite them. But if you recognize or your loved ones recognize in you symptoms that are dangerous, severe depression, substance abuse, suicidality, obtaining professional help is critical. And as we said before, we all need to work together to remove the barriers associated with that. Now, there's a lot more to say about coping strategies, and their efficacy will be different for different people, but we've covered enough ground for one day. I do hope to come back to this topic again in the series. There are more experts out there that I'd love to have everyone hear from, and their wisdom is worth sharing. We also mentioned that there are books and websites that you can explore for help, and each of them also go into more coping strategies in more detail. I'll be putting links to some of these resources in the show notes. So today we've gone from hearing one family's story of the dire consequences of untreated malpractice stress syndrome and the barriers to seeking help that are unique to physicians. We've talked about an example of a structured peer support system, the Apollo program, and its successes. And I hope I've made you think about how your institution might benefit from a formal or an informal peer support program. We've talked about reframing. In a previous podcast, we talked about learning how to understand the deliberate emotional manipulation involved in the legal process and how to train yourself to respond rather than react emotionally to legal events. And today we discussed reframing in terms of shifting into the understanding that this process is largely about money. When you try to stop taking it so personally, it's often protective, but difficult to do. It's a message you may have to hear over and over to really get through. And that's why isolating yourself is not the answer. We need to keep talking through these emotions and these processes. As Marge said, you got to work through them. You can't stuff them. Finally, make play, rest, escape your new self-care mantra. There's value in spending some time analyzing what activities bring you joy and investing time in those activities, deliberately setting aside time from work for self-renewing activities, even when it feels like work to do that. You can be a great physician without being a martyr to the healthcare system or the legal system. Draw boundary lines, take back some time in your life 
and make those acts of self-care a priority. Think of them more as self-preservation than indulgence, because it is. We're going to keep talking about coping strategies, and next month we'll be focusing on the deposition, a very high-level stressor for many. We'll be getting practical advice from a defense attorney on how to prepare, what to expect, and more about how to deal with the stress of it. And if you're interested in learning more about how to set up your own peer support program, you can email me at doctorsandlitigation at gmail.com. Until next time.